0: Brunswick prosecutors convicted Dennis Perry of killing a couple in their church in 1985, while another suspect had admitted to killing,
1: quote, those two N-words on tape. Why would a person keep saying this if he didn't do it?
0: I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, AJC reporter Joshua Sharp gives us the backstory to his investigation of a case that may have let a racist murderer go free. We'll hear about the local deputy haunted by his failure to find
1: the killer. He knew these people, he knew how good these people were. He knew how traumatic this event was for all the other people who were in the church that night. He put it all on his shoulders. He was gonna be the man to solve it.
0: Get details on the investigation just reopened by the
2: GBI, plus novelist Mary Beth Keane. People lying to themselves that I think is just so fascinating to me to watch, to experience, to observe. Coming up, first the news.
0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. On March 11th, 1985, Harold and Thelma Swain were shot in the vestibule of a Baptist church in southeast Georgia during evening Bible study. Witnesses from the black congregation described a white man with shoulder-length hair who got away. The town
2: is still in a state of shock. Almost everyone in Spring Bluff knew the Swains, they can't believe this has happened.
0: It is solved now by the arrest
1: and conviction of this man that's in jail. Personally, don't think that this guy committed that crime.
0: The investigation went cold. Leads that flooded in after a 1988 episode of Unsolved Mysteries proved false. The investigation got a jumpstart nearly 20 years later, and in 2003, Dennis Perry was convicted despite questionable evidence and is serving two life terms in prison. Still, some details troubled investigators. The Georgia Innocence Project got involved. A true crime podcast uncovered holes in the case and spurred Joshua Sharp, who covers criminal Justice for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to revisit an early suspect's alibi. His findings led to new DNA evidence, and on May 12th, the GBI reopened investigation. Last weekend, the AJC published a long-form narrative and online documentary on this dramatic turnaround in the 35-year-old case. And reporter Joshua Sharp joins us now to talk about what he learned in nearly a year of reporting. Josh, welcome.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Well, let's go back to this march night in 1985 when Harold and Thelma Swain were killed they'd been married for more than 43 years beloved members of the community in rural Camden County what did you learn about them and their role there in the small town of Spring Bluff
1: well it's 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 hard to put it much better than what you said they were they were beloved i mean i, I just never found anyone who had anything bad to say about these people and to the contrary everyone had just glowing things to say about these people. You know, Harold Swain was was someone who, you know, he was a retired pulp water and he spent his his time after that just sort of helping people. He would go to neighbors' houses and ask if they needed help with yard work uh, for for no reason. He would just show up. Hey, do you need anything? What can I do for you? How can I help you? Um and that is sort of how he is remembered around Spring Bluff and this this person who you would never think would fall victim to a crime like this. And his wife, Thelma, was, you know, much the same. She wasn't out in the community quite as much because she, um, she was a, a homemaker and she doted after their adopted daughter, but she, she was very active at the church. She took minutes at the church mission meetings. She was involved in their outreach to people in need in the community. And, you know, speaking with, with people who knew her, there's one story that that always sticks out with me, and that was that one of her brothers was in World War II, and he came back just uh, really damaged from from the experience. And when he needed a place to go and deal with this dramatic PTSD that he had, that she brought him into their home, and he lived there, and, and she helped him fight through these just explosive, terrible flashbacks that he had for years and years. Just both Harold and Thelma, from everything I've ever heard, were two people who had just gigantic hearts.
0: Well, the church that you mentioned, Rising Daughter Baptist Church, based on witnesses to the crime, what do we know about what happened in their final moments?
1: So what we know about what happened is that a a man came to the church about 8.45 p.m. on that night, and... This woman uh, named Vanzola Williams was walking out of the church. She had to leave to go pick up her daughter.
2: Vanzola Williams was leaving the church when a man with long blonde hair approached her and pointed to Swain, saying he wanted to speak to him. Williams went on her way and left the two talking.
1: The witness statements seem to suggest that that Harold did not know this person. So Harold went to talk to him, and you know, the witnesses said that nobody really paid much attention to this. Because people were all the time stopping at the church asking for gas money or food or something. Uh, and they were, they were always happy to help. So they just, they, they went about their, uh, about their business as Herod was in the vestibule talking to this man. Then all of a sudden, before I could get the car door open, I heard the shots, four shots. And Thelma knows what that must mean. And she runs to the vestibule to try to help save her husband. And as soon as she arrives, uh, the gunman shoots her once in the chest and they both fall dead there in the vestibule together.
0: Well, it is just a terrible scene and one of the first to the scene was Butch Kennedy, sheriff's deputy at the time, who was put on the case. He knew the Swains personally. This is not something local law enforcement dealt with often. So first, give us a sense of who Butch Kennedy is and why he was so critical to the story as it unfolded.
1: Well, Butch Kennedy is is sort of a a a born police officer. You know, this 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 man grew up in the Telfair County Jail. His father was the chief sheriff's deputy in Telfair County and his family lived in a suite under the jail. And he idolized his dad. He liked everything about his dad, so he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. And you know, some some of Butch Kennedy's earliest memories in life are Chatting with inmates there at the Telfair County Jail, you know, they used to make, there was one, I think there was one, who used to make him toys. These are good memories for him. He just wanted to be in that world. And he had some success, you know, he, he, he ascended uh, the ranks at the Camden County Sheriff's Office. And then when he got on this case, he knew that he's the lead investigator. He knew that this was something that he had to solve. He knew these people. He knew how good these people were. He knew how traumatic this event was for all the other people who were in the church that night. He put it all on his shoulders. He was going to be the man to solve it. And he worked very hard through the years. He and his partner, Joe Gregory, worked very hard. And and they had assistance from other investigators and deputies and GBI agents as well. But they were the ones leading the charge in this case.
0: Well, you've spoken to Butch Kennedy many times over the course of your reporting. Uh, In the AJC's documentary about the case, you can hear he is just still devastated by it.
2: It's so easy to pass by
0: here every day. Not every day, every other day or every three or four days. But it's not easy to pass by here without thinking about it. Or waking up at night and thinking about it. I see them back in the church. Laying on the floor, nobody just took them away. That is Butch Kennedy there speaking about the double murder of a black couple in 1985. I'm speaking with Joshua Sharp, who covers criminal justice for the AJC. He looked into this case and revealed some evidence that has kind of dramatically changed the course of this case and has reopened an investigation by the GBI. Well, as you mentioned, Joe Gregory from the GBI partnered with Butch Kennedy, and together they began to hone in on a suspect, Donnie Barentine. He was involved with drug trafficking in the Florida panhandle, was seen at a party there waving around a gun, calling himself God. I can give life. I can take it away. And I've taken something, the lives of two black people in a church, he said. Well, they're still circling around him, they never went to trial, by the way, they come across another possible suspect, a man named Eric Sparr. Who is he, and what's his possible connection to the murder?
1: So Eric Spar is a man who grew up mostly in Brunswick, but he did also live off and on and spend a lot of time in the area around the church. And he came up on the police radar in 1986. And how this happened was the family of his ex-wife came forward to Butch Kennedy and said that we have Eric Sparr on tape saying that he killed the Swains. And Butch hears this tape, according to the police records, and he goes to interview the ex-wife. And the ex-wife gives a really remarkable set of details to Kennedy. She says that she left Eric in the same month that the murders happened a year earlier. And she said that... There was one night where he had come home uh, not wearing the same clothes that he had worn the night prior. And she said that happened during the same week of the murders. She also said something about a key piece of evidence, according to Kennedy. Next to the bodies, when Kennedy and Gregory arrived at the crime scene, they found a pair of glasses. These glasses did not belong to anyone in the church. And Kennedy and Gregory believed that they must have belonged to the killer. The killer must have dropped them. So Kennedy was interested about these glasses and Spar's ex-wife told a story about some glasses. She said that Eric had a pair of glasses that he lost sometime before the murders. And he got three different pairs of glasses and cobbled, sort of cobbled together one new pair for himself. And Kennedy knew this could explain these glasses because the glasses that were found in the vestibule were made from different parts of several different pairs of glasses and they also had transmission fluid on the lenses, and the lenses were also pitted and, and worn as if they'd been worn by somebody while welding. Well, Spar's ex-wife told Kennedy that he had done welding work, and he'd worked on cars as well. So this made Kennedy very interested to see what she would say if she saw the glasses. So he goes back to the sheriff's office, and he gets three pairs of glasses, which he say look similar to the ones found in the church. And he shows Emily, Spar's ex wife, these glasses. And he says, Do any of these look familiar? And she picked the pair from the church. Mm-hmm. So, this obviously seems like very, very significant evidence to Kennedy. Within hours, he goes and obtains a search warrant. And he and Gregory go and search the home of Spar's parents in Brunswick. But they don't find anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they need to know if Spar has an alibi. So Joe Gregory calls up the Winn-Dixie in Brunswick where Spar was believed to have been working at the time of the murders. And he asks the person who he believes is the boss, was Spar on the clock that night? Well, the person says, words to the effect of, it's been a year, so I'm going to have to check with the corporate and get back with you. A couple weeks later, this person calls back and tells Gregory that, yes, Spar was at work that night. He clocked in. In the afternoon, it did not clock out until the next morning, so he would have been here the whole time that the murders were happening. And also, I've spoken with other people who worked with Spar that night, and they remember him being here that night. Mm -hmm. So Gregory and Kennedy uh, decide that that's enough to clear Spar, so they go back to other suspects immediately.
0: So Spar is no longer a suspect, but the years wear on, no conclusive suspect or no arrests or trial. By 1992, this has become Camden County's longest-running cold case. And depending on who you ask, Butch Kennedy is let go or resigns from 1992 and leaves law enforcement and his whole identity behind. Here he is talking again, reflecting again on the case.
1: You hate yourself for, for not being able to do what what you're supposed to do. You're, you're supposed to solve these things. You're supposed to make them right. You're supposed to do that. And when you don't and you can't, you're just so disappointed.
0: Well, we're going to get back to the case that Butch Kennedy was unable to solve. Take a short break and we'll be back with Joshua Sharp. He's a reporter for the AJC, and when we return, we'll hear how his reporting in part led to a renewed interest in the case of a South Georgia double murder. We'll hear what he found and learn more about how a different man was convicted for the murders of Harold and Thelma Swain. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB and Virginia Prescott. We're picking up on our conversation from before the break with Joshua Sharp, who spent the last ten months looking into the double murder of Harold and Thelma Swain in rural Camden County, Georgia, and the man serving two life sentences for murder who maintains his innocence. The GBI reopened the case on May the twelfth, thanks in part to Sharp's reporting. When we left off, the case had gone pretty cold. The, former, the lead investigator, Butch Kennedy, had been removed from his position. And then the sheriff rehired a former deputy, Dale Bundy, on a one-year contract to take over the case. Focus only on that. This was in 1998. Bundy talked to an eyewitness at the church who had fainted, actually, when she saw the killer initially. And she led her to a woman named Jane Beaver. Jane Beaver. So Bundy goes and talks to her. What did she say?
1: So, yes, so Cora Fisher had been in the church and had fainted as the gunshots rang out. And Jane Beaver had gone to Cora and another woman who'd been in the church back in the late 80s, apparently, and shown them a picture of Dennis Perry and said, does this look like the killer? And that is apparently how Cora Fisher comes to believe that Dennis is the killer. Mm Mm-hmm because she sees this picture, she says, and faints. So Bundy goes and finds Jane Beaver, and she tells him that Dennis and her daughter had dated, which was was accurate, before the murders. And she says that there was one day, about three weeks before the murders, that Dennis came over to their house to visit. And this was after they broke up. And Jane Beaver says her daughter was not in the room to hear this, but Dennis told her, that he had tried to borrow money from Harold Swain, and Harold Swain had laughed in his face. And because of that, Dennis was going to kill him.
0: Hmm. Now Dennis Perry had been a suspect but had been cleared by Kennedy and Gregory because he had a solid alibi. But then this case moves along 15 years after the Swains were murdered. Bundy arrested Perry. Now 15 years after Harold and Thelma Swain were murdered, Camden County Sheriff Bill Smith has even more reason to think about them. That's because the couple's alleged killer is now behind bars.
1: I always thought that somewhere in these files there was the clue that would sort of unravel the whole story. And I've got to thank Mr. Bundy again for bringing that information to light.
0: And this is where a a It seems a glaring failure of law enforcement stands out. Perry gets questioned by three investigators in Jacksonville, Florida. There's no recording, and only the word on the notes of the investigators submitted as evidence of what they say is a confession. This was all used at the 2003 trial. Defense notes the lack of notation and redundancy and accountability. But it's the testimony of this Jane Beaver that you write, fell like a bomb. What was later discovered about her account?
1: Well, for one thing, her daughter, this being the daughter who had dated Dennis Perry, did not believe that Dennis was guilty. That was uncovered by the podcast Undisclosed. Uh, Undisclosed also uh, uncovered a document that proved that Jane Beaver received $12,000 in reward money for her testimony, which was not disclosed to the defense. So the jury didn't get to know about that. The jury also didn't get to know that Jane Beaver is someone who even people who were close with her regarded her as someone who was an unreliable narrator because she'd been through hell in her life. She, she had uh, lost a couple of children. She had lost husband as well, I believe. And the people I who who I've spoken with who knew her said that each of these things added up to make her just this traumatized person who was not always in touch with reality. Mm -hmm. Some friends, I think lovingly, called her Crazy Jane. Hmm.
0: Well, nonetheless, there's a guilty verdict returned for Perry. He's given a split-second choice between the death penalty or two life sentences if he waives his right to appeal. He did choose the latter. What has life looked like for him since...
1: Well, since then, life for Dennis Perry has certainly gotten much worse. He's been behind bars for for 20 years now, uh, praying for someone with the power to do something about it, to believe that he's innocent. And, you know, after he goes to prison, he says that he ends up breaking it off with his his wife because he doesn't feel like she had signed up for this, had not signed up to be married to a man who was going to be in prison for the rest of both of their lives. And and he goes through uh, what I can imagine are a few years of despair. And then uh, another woman comes along, a woman who he had known for, for years off and on in Camden County. He'd never dated her, but they, you know, they knew one another and they start exchanging letters and they end up falling in love and they end up getting married in 2009 at prison. And, they just you know talking to dennis about his new wife brenda and talking to brenda about dennis is it's just a love fest i mean mm-hmm. they they cannot say enough nice things about each other they are so madly in love and they have been all this time and you know their lives right now pretty much revolve around dennis's trouble and they dream of the of the time when they can be together you know, some, some things that folks might not think about is that 11 years they've been married. They've never been alone together. Mm. Not once. Not once have they been alone together. They see each other once a week for five hours at a prison in Coffee County. And they sit on opposite sides of a, of a table, like a cafeteria style table. Guards are watching them. Other inmates and their relatives are, are around neither Dennis nor Brenda can cross the center line of the table that they're sitting on. And if they get too close, guards admonish them and they just long for the day when, when, when they can have that. And Dennis has become very, very spiritual uh, uh, and, and religious over the years. And he you know, he told Brenda recently that he's, he's going to pray his way out of prison. That, that was That's what he's going to do. And, you know, she has a lot of anger at the way he was done by the criminal justice system. And she, he talks her down from that. You know, he, he tells her that no, there's no point in holding a grudge. You know, we need to just wait and this will all work out. This will all work out.
0: What a story you have come upon and reported on. Joshua Sharp, is my guest. He covers criminal justice for the AJC and has been working for almost a year on the double murder of a black couple in 1985. His work, along with that of the Georgia Innocence Project and King and Spaulding, a law firm working pro bono with them, have led to the GBI reopening the case earlier this month. Let's get to your role, because this is a critical part of where your work comes in. You started to look at Eric Spar. Now, to review, we know his ex-wife, Emily, said that he confessed to killing the Swains. There's a tape that the family has of him saying, I'm the mother effer who killed the two N-words in that church. Uh She identifies the pair of glasses. His second ex-wife also said that he boasted about killing the Swains. So you go back and check on his alibi. What did you find?
1: Yeah. So when I came into this case, I I wanted to see what had not been looked at. And, you know, after 35 years, there had been a lot of investigation on this case. And it was almost as if there was hardly anything for me to look at. But one thing that it seemed like could, could use more scrutiny was, was Eric Sparr. And I needed to do a couple of things with Eric Spar. I needed to find his ex-wives if I could. Now, one of his ex-wives has passed away and the other one is still alive. So I went and I talked to her and I said, you know, is this true? Did he really tell you that he, that he killed the couple? And she said he did. So I said, okay, if he keeps saying this, why, w- why would a person keep saying this if he didn't do it? So I decided that I needed to look at this alibi and see if you know, what I find there, I needed, to, I needed to talk to his boss who, who had given this alibi information. So I set about trying to find a boss and the boss is listed on the documents as Donald A. Mobley. One thing in that document from Gregory's conversation with Mobley stood out to me. And that was the sentence that said, Mobley claimed to have spoken with other employees who had been there on that same night and remembered Spar being there. Now, I knew that this conversation with Gregory and the manager took place a year after the murders, a whole year.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I could not tell you where I was a year ago, and I absolutely could not tell you where my co-workers were a year ago. So I decided to see if I could find Donald A. Mobley, perhaps he could explain this to me. And I conducted uh, quite a bit of research through public records, and I, could, I was having the hardest time finding where there had ever been a Donald A. Mobley who lived in the Brunswick area. So I decided to start tracking down uh, Win dixie employees, just looking for any name of a Win dixie employee that I could find for that store or a nearby store. Eventually, I turned up at the door of a man who, who was a longtime Win dixie manager, and I knew he had worked in that same store. And I asked him, do you know Donald Mobley? And he said, no. And he called his wife out. She had also worked at that same store at the same time in the mid-80s. And she did not know a Donald Mobley. But they both knew a David Mobley. So I was saying, oh, okay. Well, maybe this explains it. Maybe Gregory got the first name wrong. Well, they give me David Mobley's phone number. And I stand there in the driveway and call him. And I asked, you know, does any of this sound familiar to you? Did, did anyone call about Eric bar and the murders? And he says, no, I, I would remember someone calling about the murders because the murders were an enormous news story. And I said, did you ever have an employee named Donald Mobley? And he said, absolutely not. He said, my last name is Mobley, so I can guarantee you I would have known if I had an employee who had the same last name. I was the only Mobley in the whole store. And I also found that all of the personal details listed on this report couldn't be verified. There's a birthday, there's a social security number, there's a home address. None of these things match any person who has ever lived. And that's when I realized that it seems that this person described on this document is not a real person. So I knew that, you know, Mr. Spar's alibi had a big problem. And if you asked Gregory now what was the big mistake he made, it was probably not going to the store in person.
0: Yeah. I mean, a man's getting cleared as a murder suspect based on a phone call.
1: Yeah. And, and Joe Gregory, you know, doesn't feel great about that in hindsight. I'm sure. He, he, he does know that they had so many tips to go over, especially early on. So I guess he was busy. And thought it was good enough, but obviously it wasn't.
0: Well, so after discovering these issues with his alibi, you yourself reached out to Spar requesting to talk. Here's here's a tape from some of that conversation. I, ho- I hope y'all find out who actually did it. I had nothing
1: to do with this. I want it to stay where it is gone.
0: You spoke with him again later. He called you back angry, convinced that you sent people to his house to collect DNA. It was actually the Georgia Innocence Project who heard about your findings and decided to test his mother's DNA for a match. But you called Spar back after those results came in, which were pretty conclusive, and asked for comment. Let's hear a little bit of that
1: conversation. The DNA test was done by the Georgia Innocence Project, and it showed that, you, that your mother's hair matched the DNA found on a pair of glasses next to the bodies. And I want to see how you can explain that to me.
0: Look, I have no idea. I don't have any glasses missing.
1: Em- Why don't you leave me alone? Emily said, Emily told the police in 1986 that you had a pair of glasses just like that. And
0: I don't know what she told them and I don't care. I want to be left alone. Leave me alone. Do not call me anymore. That's you speaking with the revived person of interest, Eric Spar. Well, let me ask you, the pair of glasses themselves and the hairs that were caught in the hinges, the DNA was processed decades ago now. They can't retest them. They can only use the old data that they have on that. Where do you see this case going in the near future?
1: Well, so on the DNA, the, 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 the only time that the hairs themselves uh, were ever tested was in 2001. This was ahead of Dennis Perry's trial. And these hairs were caught in the hinge of the glasses they were found next to the bodies. And Dennis Perry's uh, DNA did not match those hairs. And Donnie Barentine, the other uh, key suspect in the case, did not match those hairs. And sometimes since the trial happened and now, the hairs have gone missing. So if you still had the hairs, then you would have 2020 technology to test them. But as it stands now, we're stuck with 2001 technology to test those hairs. And the best that they could do in 2001 was a mitochondrial DNA test, which can tell you the maternal line of the person who the hairs belong to. That's why the, the Innocence Project tested hairs from Spar's mother because they obviously have the same maternal line. Mm-hmm. Now, according to the lab report, the test shows that 99.6 percent of the North American population would not be a match to those hairs. Now, what that means is that one in 250 people could be a match, And you know, the number might not sound uh, compelling by itself. Uh, but I spoke with a renowned forensics expert who told me that, that yes, a more modern test might produce the the, the a higher probability number, like one in a trillion or something like or they were used to from CSI. But that's just not possible in this case because the hairs are gone. Nobody knows where the hairs are. Or if they do, they're not telling. But he said if you look at the hairs compared with the other evidence that there is against Spar, then it becomes more compelling. You know, you had two ex-wives saying that Spar – Confess to the murders. You have both of those ex-wives saying that Spar is a violent racist. You have uh, Spar somehow ending up with an alibi that it's, it contains fraudulent information. When you put all that together, this forensic expert told me that uh, that Spar would be pretty unlucky to match and have all those all those different things lined up against him. So where do I see the case going? I don't, I don't know, but I, because, you know, the GBI is being pretty tight-lipped about what they're finding at this point. Um, but the experts I've spoken with say that, that, uh, that it seems as though a case could be made against Eric Spar.
0: I couldn't help but notice here that this is the same part of Georgia under the jurisdiction of DA Jackie Johnson, who may or may not be under investigation by the DOJ for handling her handling of the Ahmad Arbery case. The sluggish pace of arrests in that case really caused an uproar. Do you, Joshua, see any parallels between how these cases have been handled by the DA's office?
1: Well, um, if there's a parallel, it's it's. The, that word sluggish that you brought up. Um, I, I'm hearing a lot of complaints from people who say that Jackie Johnson should have moved much faster than she did after learning, after her office learned about this new DNA linking Spar to the crime scene. It, it took six weeks for her to ask the GBI to open investigation. Now, I've spoken with former DAs, former judges, law professors, spoken with uh, former Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, Leah Ward-Sears. What all of these people have told me is that based on the motion for new trial and other evidence in the case, that Jackie Johnson ought to just release Dennis Perry from prison without a GBI investigation. So she's you know facing criticism for that as well as the delay and You know, the big thing that people are have been upset about with the Arbery case is that it took so long for his alleged uh, killers to be uh, arrested. You know, his killing happened in February and and the arrests were only a couple of weeks ago. And here we have another case where Jackie Johnson knew for six weeks about exculpatory DNA evidence in Dennis Perry's case and did not... Act until after six weeks to ask the GBI to investigate.
0: Joshua, it goes without saying that it's because of your contribution to this inquiry that an innocent man may be exonerated and walk free. How does it feel to you to live with that knowledge?
1: Oh, boy. Um, It's overwhelming. It's surprising. It's surreal. (laughs) It it, It has been just a crazy whirlwind, this story. And the reporting process has certainly been one of the more fulfilling ones, if not the most fulfilling of my life and of my career. You know, I I just hope that the right things happen. You know, whatever the courts and, and the people who are in charge decide is the right thing, I hope that thing happens. And I hope that the Swain's family, that Swain's loved ones get some peace as well.
0: Well, Josh, I want to congratulate you on a job fantastically well done. And thank you so much for your time to go through this case with us.
1: You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for for your interest.
0: Joshua Sharp, there, reporter who covers criminal justice for the AJC. There's a four-chapter series on this story, including a documentary that you can watch. It is a fascinating and rich story, and we just touched upon it. The link can be found at gpbnews.org. Coming up, a story of mental illness, addiction, and ultimately forgiveness with New York Times bestselling author Mary Beth Keene. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series has featured a parade of A-list writers for free on Zoom since March. Last week, I spoke with Mary Beth Keene about her 2019 novel, Ask Again, Yes. It was an instant New York Times bestseller and is now out in paperback. The novel follows the families of two New York City police officers who live next door to each other in a suburb north of the city and a tragedy that divides them and their children over four decades. It's a story of mental illness, addiction, and ultimately forgiveness, and is narrated primarily through four characters, Francis Gleason and Stanhope, who's mentally ill, and their children, Kate and Peter, who fall in love. Given the animosity between their families, there's also a Romeo and Juliet subtext. I asked Mary Beth Keane if she thought of it like that going in.
2: You know, I don't think that I thought of it quite that consciously, but I did have a sense of a coming together, you know, this real classic romance, um, in the sense that there were obstacles that they had to overcome and then they overcame them. But I think like in college, when I read Romeo and Juliet in my Shakespeare course, I always wondered what would happen afterwards, you know, had they lived and had to live with one another after that one week of intense passion, what would things have been like? Um, and that's really what it is sort of like for Kate and Peter. You know, they go through a lot together, but it's the mundane parts of life that are kind of the most challenging of all.
0: Well, the story is observed primarily through Peter and Kate's eyes, as well as Anne Stanhope, who is Peter's mother, and Francis Gleason, Kate's father. And they go through distinct ages, and of course, there are different genders, and experiences as they age in this nearly 40-year history so you had to imagine how, the way that they look at the world and how it would evolve. How, do, how deeply did you go with that in developing these characters?
2: You know, I think that writing is a lot like acting, you know, from what I can gather about method acting. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I'm offending any actors by comparing those things, but I really tried to be each character in a particular moment in time and think the way they would think if I had certain experiences and if I had um, a particular, you know, worldview. Anne Stanhope was probably the most difficult character to get down because she suffers from mental illness, a mood disorder, um, as one doctor told me to describe it. Um, you know, a diagnosis changes over time. And what we described one way in the 1970s, we would use totally different words to describe now. And that was one of the main challenges of the book is to be sort of respectful of the illness while also, you know, honoring the way that people were and the way they thought in particular moments in time, 70s, 80s, 90s. Now, we've come a long way and we talk about mental illness differently now, but, you know, there's still a long way to go. You grew up
0: in an Irish-American community in Pearl River. It's a suburb like Gillum where this story is set in Rockland County. And there are many police officers, many first responders there. This was a, a path for many Irish American immigrants to assimilate.
2: Were there cops in your family? There weren't. I, um, my parents immigrated from Ireland in the 60s. And so I had a lot of aunts and uncles here who immigrated. But for some reason, none of them became police officers. However, uh, the parents of a lot of my friends growing up were cops, You know, particularly the dads. They were detectives in the... Bronx in the 1970s. And that's something I didn't figure out until I was much older. I knew a lot of times that they were cops, you know, somewhere. I mean, you don't really care what your friend's dad does for a living when you're 10. But it was when I got older and I got to college and I learned more about, you know, the Fort Apache years, the Bronx's burning years, what Manhattan was like um, in that period. When I realized, you know, I started putting two and two together that like, Mr. Brennan, who used to like skim his pool and his plaid shorts and his his dress socks pulled up to his knees, was in one of the most difficult, you know, precincts during one of the most difficult time in New- times in New York's history. And so I guess I just started mulling that over and how you kind of live one happy-go-lucky life at home in the suburbs and one not happy-go-lucky life, you know, on the job. I mean, they really are their own um, ethnicity, you know, in a way, uh, police officers, they speak their own language. A lot of times they only understand each other. They have their own traditions and, you know, they're they're closed off to outsiders to an extent. And I think that, you know, my privilege was my access. You know, I I just knew these people. They knew me from growing up. They think it's, for the most part, you know, they get a kick out of the fact that I write books and these books are sometimes in the New York Times, things like that. And so I was able to text them and say, would you meet me for a plate of eggs and bacon? And I, I have a couple questions for you. And, um, and as some of them, as particularly the retired detectives from like the seventies, eighties era were great. They're great storytellers. The thing is every cop story is really um, polished. You know, I can tell when they're used to telling a story and they've told it a hundred times. Sometimes I wasn't really interested in that kind of thing. You know, what I wanted to know was how they felt, you know, how conflicted they felt about their maybe their power and their position. And I think a lot of the people I talked to weren't used to, you know, talking in that way. This seems like a rich vein in this book,
0: what is not said. There are scenes of domesticity that absolutely crackle with the tension of people just about to say something, but then not saying them. And you also mentioned trauma and how it is, we know now, carried through generations. In the book, there's mental illness, there's addiction, and we see how it carries on in the lives of of the children and the people around them. So what are some of the ways that you you looked at that?
2: Um, I mean, I think first of all, I'm always interested in characters who are not that articulate about how they feel. You know, I felt like a fish out of water. I think when I got to college and I was with people whose parents had written books and had been on television. I went to Barnard College in New York City And I was of, you know, a family that didn't have any of those things. My dad was a construction worker. I didn't really identify with the the reading that I was given in English, you know, literature classes. And so, you know, I, I appreciated it and I learned from it. But When I started writing, I was really attracted to the type of character who might say a thing and even think a thing but then feel a completely different way. That conflict to me is really interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. About the trauma, I mean, I think that that's the whole thing. That's the center of the book, that some people are able to say, this happened to me and this really hurt me. And some people are just not able to do that for a whole host of reasons. And I am way more interested in the second type of person. You know, trauma is a really hard thing. It looks differently in different cultures. there's also... Things that people would not necessarily consider
0: ordinary, like the first person point of view or perspective of being bipolar or having some form of psychosis. So spot on. How did you get inside of that?
2: That was really hard. That was one of the hardest parts of the book. I actually wrote a whole draft without entering Anne's point of view, just because I was really afraid of getting it wrong. And, you know, if people have a person in their lives who's say bipolar Um, or clinically depressed, and it doesn't, my depiction doesn't look like their loved one, people get really upset, you know, and Mm -hmm. they get protective of their own experiences. So I was afraid. I read a lot of memoirs. I was lucky enough to have two, um, one psychologist and one psychiatrist who, in my life, who I had access to and would answer questions when I needed questions answered. And at some point, I just had to try going there because I realized if I only looked at Anne from the outside, the reader would not have as much sympathy for her as I wanted them to have only in experiencing what she experienced, which I think was based in fear. um, I think was I able to sort of find sympathy in my own heart for her. I mean, she does things that are not for some people totally forgivable, I suppose. But I think when I turned those things over, I realized almost everything she does is from a place of fear. And I think if you see another human being who is afraid, I don't know. I think it would take a really toughened heart to not feel for that person. Yeah. Um, but that was hard. That was the hardest part of writing this book, for sure. Paige asks, I'm curious about
0: Mary Beth's approach to developing Peter's alcoholism. Was that something she was always interested in writing about or did it organically arise? I think the way the novel depicts it is so much more true to life than more extreme renderings.
2: I agree with that. I I really appreciate that comment. I think that I had read and seen too many depictions of the fall down drunk, you know, who loses everything. And I was way more familiar with the functional alcoholic who can somehow by some miraculous thing, get up and go to work the next day. Um, You know, alcoholism was something that really hit me, I think, when I hit 40 uh, a couple of years ago. You know, it's a a mystery to me why some people get out alive and some people don't. I had my first drink young. It was just the way that, I don't know, we grew up around here, and I know that I don't have a problem, you know, with alcohol. I don't know why. And I know some people who grew up the same way I did and who really do. You know, and I, I can't figure it out even now, but I just started thinking about it more and more. You know, I feel like everyone was getting along, you know, and you'd have your moments and we'd sort of laugh about a big night out. But then at a certain point, there were some people who just could not stop. Um, and And I don't know how I got lucky, but it's something that still troubles me, honestly. It's really interesting to me who seeks help and who doesn't, who admits they have a problem and who doesn't, um, what alcohol means to different people and why. And I I do think about it a lot, but I don't think I thought about it my whole life. I think it's something I just noticed, you know, when I hit certain age.
0: I wonder, uh, you had your actual, in real life book tour last year for Ask Again, yes. So what is it like for you now? You spent four years writing this to revisit these families that you came to know so well as you're talking about them again.
2: I mean, I I really haven't stopped talking about them this year. Um, I was supposed to be on a bigger tour right now than I was for hardback uh, last May. And so this is odd uh, to do all of this from home. But I really, this book has been a real surprise to me and Probably to my publisher, if I'm being totally honest, I didn't see this coming. Like the way that people are um, identifying with this story, and so I haven't, I haven't really stopped talking about them. Um, I have started to be strict with myself about separating what I'm working on now from these conversations because it can be a little bit confusing to talk about, you know, one group of characters in the evenings and then try to work on a different group during the day but i'm getting i'm getting the hang of it i'm getting better it's certainly easier to do it from home than it would be on the road so that's a you know a blessing in a way um but it's they are definitely with me but honestly even from the walking people which i finished which came out in 2009 i still think of those characters too i think they're all just going to be with me for the long haul maybe Mary Beth Keen, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I hope everybody stays healthy.
0: Mary Beth Keane's book Ask Again Yes is now out in paperback. Fever is being developed into a BBC TV series by Elizabeth Moss who will also star. We talked about that and much more and you can watch a video of our full conversation at gbbnews.org. There's a full slate of virtual author talks coming up in June including Curtis Sittenfeld's new book about Hillary Rodham Clinton. It's called Rodham and Roxane Gay is going to be moderating that talk on June 4th. Also Stacey Abrams on June 15th. You can see a full schedule and Zoom links at Atlanta You can find us on Twitter at OST Talk. Our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought. And take us anywhere you want when you subscribe to the On Second Thought podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. And I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for your time, your attention, and in a world dominated by hot takes, making some room for a second thought. This is GBB.